Welcome to the Surrender Podcast. Surrender is a collective of Christian groups and organisations from across Australia. We work in unity to share Jesus' call to seek his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. We create spaces for the sharing of stories that motivate, support and equip people to love their neighbour, share good news and live justly, both locally and globally. Please note, Surrender provides spaces for conversation and storytelling and does not necessarily endorse the personal views of any one presenter. Mick Duncan has lived and worked in the slums of Manila, the inner city of Melbourne and in South Auckland. With academic degrees combined with street degrees, Mick brings his speaking and teaching, discernment, wisdom and tools, all for the trade of mission and ministry. This is Mick Duncan's Bible study entitled, I Want to Be Like Jesus, Yeah Right. This is the first session entitled, Radical Micro-Obedience, Loving God. So, um, welcome to our little circle. I see faces that I've seen before. Um, Nice to have you here. So, I'm doing a series on um, loving God, loving neighbour and loving enemy for the next three mornings at 9.30. So you're most welcome to um, come back because we have a different topic each morning of the week uh, or the weekend. I just flew in from New Zealand yesterday afternoon and it was so hot I had to get some shorts out of my backpack and just frequented the um, parks of Melbourne and then woke up to this. But I was telling someone just before that there was one year in which we, and no exaggeration, we had hailstones about that size, and they actually dented cars. So were you here that year? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm from New Zealand, um, and um, from a place now called Wanganui. We've just been living in Auckland for 20 years, but in January of this year we shifted. Um, I've only been at home really for about four weeks because I do various other things. Um, So how about you tell someone who you do not know next to you or around you a little bit about yourself and introduce yourselves before we jump into what we've got to do. Go to it. Okay, friends. So we even have someone on my right who's um, from Perth and I think that's further than what I've come. So, um, yeah. just a little bit about myself. So as I said, that we've just shifted into a new neighbourhood. Uh, and I'll share a little bit about what that looks like tomorrow, because we're starting something completely from scratch. Um, but I, just in terms of myself, I, 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 I'd just like to introduce myself as someone who has a number of um, what I call street degrees. Um, so that means that I've done various chapters in various places. Uh, in Australia, New Zealand, and in Asia. Um, so I, what I share comes out of street, but it also comes out of, I have a number of also academic degrees. So my um, first degree is in sociology, and my second is in um, theology. My master's and my PhD is in a mixture of sociology and theology, all about walking towards the stranger in your midst. So it was my PhD. So. I'd like to think that, you know, most people, we need both. Uh, Not just academic degrees, but also street degrees. Um, 
So our topic is um, loving God this morning. Now, as I reflected on this, I thought, why is it that, and this is the sociologist in me, why is it that, you know, increasingly a number of us are struggling to love God? I mean, we like Jesus, and we might lean into the Holy Spirit, but why is it that we struggle to love God? I mean, that's, that's the topic that I've been given. That's where we're going this morning, loving God. I have three things that I would like to pass on to you. And there are various points under each. So if you're into note-taking, feel quite free, but you might just like to listen. Um, so the first area that I thought we could explore, and by the way, I just love it that we break up into chat times. In other words, I do not want to be a talking head. Um, and so I'll just various times get you to pass comment with the person next to you. Is that good? Yeah. So the first thing is, um, in terms of a struggle to love God, look, the best way I can encapsulate this is by telling you a little story. It's, it's a favourite story of mine, but I was at a cafe in Auckland. Who's been to Auckland? Anybody here? Most of the room. Uh, another state of Australia. Um, so... I was at a cafe, and I was just doing time with this person who was really kind of like a goth. Um, he and I, yeah, I discovered this bloke, and he needs someone to walk alongside him, and so we went into this mutual relationship with each other. Halfway through our conversation, with his, I mean, he had big boots on, he had a big trench coat, he had metal coming out of every orifice, as it were, you know, and, and, and he came from the UK, have you got the picture? And, and then just halfway through our coffee, with clenched fists, he just banged the room, I mean, not banged the room, it felt like that, he just banged the table in front of him, and he just said, oh, I hate God! And he spoke like that, you know, he oh, I God! And, um, and at that point, I just slightly leant back, and then I, I said to him, I said to him, yeah, I probably hate the God that you hate as well. And that's not a bad comeback when you think about it. I, I would probably hate the God that you hate as well. In other words, this guy, he had what is called a distorted image of God. And I don't know if you've done this kind of work, but there are six types of distortions that people have of God, and these distortions inhibit their sense of intimacy with God, okay? These distortions, they kind of um, limit their ability to love God. I mean, I actually, and these, these distortions actually come from our families, invariably. Some of the distortions come from culture, and I think we underestimate the power of culture in our lives. But actually, most of the distortions come from the family script. And again, I think we underestimate the power of family in determining our image and our, our picture of God. Most Christians would like to think that their image of God has been formed by Scripture. Actually, in my pastoral experience, for many a Christian, the actual image of God is formed out of the family script. Are you with me on this? 
So here are six common distortions that people have of God. The first one is the God of impossible expectations. Okay? The God of impossible uh, expectations. You know, you get some people who've been brought up in a family and their parents, you know, just expect so much for them that the little kitty is forever climbing a ladder to please their parent. And as soon as they get to the top of one ladder, they think, ah, at last I would have pleased my parent, only to discover that there's another ladder. And so what people do is they project that onto God. Now that's what I did. I came from a family that um, upper middle class, I went to a private boarding school, Prince Edward taught there, not when I was there, I'm a bit older than he is, I think. And, um, but we, I was brought up in this manual of always having to please, and um, there was all, always these expectations. And so when I became a Christian in my early 20s, I fell into a transactional relationship with God. Where I felt that, you know, in order to earn his love, I had to do this and do this and do that. And that, that kind of thing, that the hold that, had, that, that that had over my life was actually broken here in Australia. Um, I, I, I was at a Bible college here in Australia and I ended up staying, um, so I was at a Bible college in Tasmania and during the holiday break we came over here, or I came over here, and I just got billeted by this Christian uh, woman, and I was just running around trying to please her, earn her love. And then she sat me down, she didn't know me, and she just said to me, Mate, you don't have to earn my love. I already, in Christ, love you. And that's something broke inside. So that's the first distorted image, uh, okay? The God of impossible expectations. The second one is... Um, the emotionally distant God. You know, there uh, are some kiddies that are brought up in homes, and for them, it's the place is arid. Um, there are no feelings. There's, their parents are out of reach, but in a different way. They're just not emotionally connected. And so people get this image of God as though he's, he's dull, and he's distant, and he's dangerous. And he's up there in the heavens, and he's got us at arm's length. And people do not think that God has affection. Um, the emotionally distant God. The third one is the disinterested God. I don't know about you, but were you brought up in a family where, you know, maybe your parents didn't exactly express interest in what you were doing. You know, you would come racing home from school, and you would put out a bid to your parents. And the bid is in an area that you had just explored that day at school. And really behind the bid, you the bidder, is that you are wanting to connect with your parent. But what they do with your bid is that they either turn away, dismiss it, demean it, belittle it, or whatever. And, and so we can easily then project that onto God, our father, mother, and um, end up with this disinterested God. Okay, uh, thirdly, I mean, sorry, fourthly, the abuse of God. Okay, the abuse of God. Now, parents can um, be abusive in all manner of ways. It's not just sexual abuse. It can be violent abuse. 
Um, it can be relational abuse. It can be verbal abuse. It can be, I mean, and so we kind of carry this kind of picture in our heart of hearts of this God who, oh, if we get too close, he could be somewhat, he could, he could um, take advantage of us. He could be too intrusive. He could violate. Uh, I will keep my distance. Okay, that's the abuse of God. The, uh, the next one is the unreliable God. You know, parents, uh, they're meant to be promise makers and promise keepers. But sometimes some of us get parents and they make all promises. They make all the promises in the world, but they don't keep the most important ones. And so they become unreliable. Can they really follow through? So therefore you get this idea of, will God really follow through? Will he actually be there when it matters? Well, of course not. I mean, that's what some people think. And then lastly, the God who abandons. You know, I, I chanced upon a story as I was preparing my notes for this weekend, and I came across the story of a young Nigerian girl who, um, before she was born, her dad left her. And um, so her mum was pregnant. They relocated from Nigeria to London. But before she was born, um, her dad left her. And then for the, six, the next six years, she was, you know, passed around in foster care. And then her, finally her mother took her, took her in. And, um, and then her dad uh, visited her when she was 12. And by this time, she was a Christian. Um, and then it was just a visit. And then her dad visited again when she was 15. And it just, for her, reignited, rekindled all the pain of being abandoned. And you know, for many years in her Christian life, she talked about loving Jesus, but God was right out of the picture. Uh, she couldn't connect with this God because she had projected that image onto him that, well, he's a God who abandons, and that's the sixth type, the sixth distorted image. Now, I have a question for you. Each one of us here in this lovely warm tent, <laughs> each one of us comes close to struggling with at least one of these. Now, I've already told you the one that I do, and it was the one of the God of impossible expectations. So on a wet day, which one of these is the one that, you know, kind of raises its ugly head? In the middle of the night, when you've just been awoken and you're full of a bit of anxiety, which one of these is the image that comes knocking on the door of your life? Now, if you don't mind being transparent with the person next to you, could you mention which one and why? And is it related to a significant other in your life? doesn't have to be parents. Go to it. Um, this is a Bible study, so it's good to have scripture. The story that comes to mind for me of someone who suffered from a distorted image of God is the person who is found in Judges 11, and you can look this up later, and his name is Jephthah. And I don't know if you can recall the story of Jephthah, but he was a guy who was born of a prostitute, born of a prostitute, and so therefore experienced incredible hurt and pain as a little boy. 
he was marginalized, pushed out to the, the outskirts of the, where he lived. And after a while, he, the only way to really survive was he, he, he formed a street gang. So I'm paraphrasing it a little bit, but, but the realities are there. He formed a street gang, and they became very effective as fighters, such that during the judges, you know, when if you've re ever um, read the book of Judges, um, I wrote a commentary on Judges, but um, he, um, the Israelites were desperately in need of leaders at times, and they saw this, this gang leader called Jephthah, and so they approached him because they had external enemies and they needed someone to fight for them, so he was enlisted and became their leader. And then the awful situation occurred where in a moment of misguided prayer to a distorted image, he said to the God that he was praying to, if you give me victory, I will give you the very first thing that comes out of my house. And um, so in other words, here was a guy who just, to, everything was, like I said before, transactional. You know, to get, you have to give. And so he just felt that with this distorted image that he was praying to, to get something, he had to give something. And so he won the battle, they won the battle, he returns home, and who's the first, or what is the first? Because it could have been an animal, but what is the first to come out of the home but his daughter? And if he had known his scripture, he could have seen in Leviticus that if you have made a misguided vow, you can kind of redeem that vow by making a, a monetary sacrifice or something. But I think that's in, yeah, in Leviticus. But, but arguably he didn't know the scripture. And so, yes, she was killed, his own daughter. So I can't help but think, people, that a solution side to these distorted images is one, yes, um, all of us going on a road of healing, doing um, bereavement work, digging up the past, that's called memory work, and then coming into the emotions of some things in our past, and that's called grievance work. So I'm Dr. Phil right now. <laughs> and then lastly, letting go of some of that stuff that we carry in our bags slung over our shoulders, stuff from the past. But if, So that's, that's needed work, but another thing is we don't read scripture enough today. I was speaking to a whole lot of young adults just this weekend gone by in the city of Dunedin and I had to really berate them. They just are not, the emerging generation are not readers of scripture. And so therefore they come under the powerful influence of culture and family. Because you need something that is counter the script of family and countercultural. And that's why we've been given scripture. It's a powerful new voice. Yes. So I just read recently, I mean just yesterday, that um, someone made it their practice to read scripture once every three months. I mean, my goal this year is to read scripture right through twice this year. But once every three months, oh, that's challenging. But I wouldn't mind giving it a go. So, so that's our first thing. Is that okay? Yeah. Is that alright?
Any comment? Any comment? Yeah, we're, we're sort of looking at the negative side of things. Yes. So what are, the, what are some of the um, redeeming, redeeming things that we can do from this? You know, because somebody's got an image, it's usually uh, stored an image. Yes. What can we sow into people to bring healing? Where, where do we go? We, we, as you said, we, we don't read scripture. Mm. We don't have a we don't have a really reliable mm. built up image of people who work on this maybe some of the people on it probably yeah. don't even aren't even reading. No. Maybe that comes in a, tomorrow a little bit with loving neighbour. And then thirdly, our third, our third day of loving enemy. So we might hit the pause button, but it's a great question. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah. Yes, Neville. Yeah. For me, I've read scripture and every time a new meaning comes out of a similar passage, you might read it a dozen times yeah. in the past and every time you read read it yeah. a new meaning comes through yeah. and you draw it you're actually drawing closer to God. So that's a big positive if yeah. you keep on reading scripture. Yeah. Just don't say I've read that like a book mm. and I know it all. You don't. Mm. It just keeps on coming through more and more and you're drawing closer and you see new aspects, new facets of God yeah. and you're drawing closer to him all yeah. the yeah, no, it's a good positive. Yeah. Here's the second thing that I'd like to raise. A bit controversial this morning. Second thing. I think another reason why some people struggle to love this God is because of suffering. Their suffering. Um, I don't know if you've heard the story, for example, of a, a guy who lost a little boy to fever. And then the following year, lost his entire family business in a big city fire. And then three years later, sent his wife and three daughters on a ship to relocate to England to start life all over again. You know who I'm talking about? And he received a telegram saying, I am the only one. And so Horatio Spafford, um, in the 19th century, lost so much. Um, I came across an account just the other day of a worship leader, worship leading arguably one of the biggest churches in the world, Willow Creek in the United States, and his name was um, uh, Zander, Howard Zander or something like this. And in, in 2008, on February 4, his body started to shake violently, um, such that he went into... Um, had a stroke and was reduced to a coma for about seven, eight days. And he came out of the coma and his right arm was now disabled. Um, he lost speech. His mental capacity had been diminished. And he had to relearn names and so forth and so on. The only job that he could score some months later was to help little kitties walk across the road at a, at a crossing which is a great job, but compared to where he had been, it was some distance. And, and then where he's working today is dismantling um, a cardboard boxes in the back of a, um, you know, what do you call it, a supermarket. 
I mean, that is huge, you know. I, I, I think of someone who prayed for their alcoholic um, um, mother for 21 years and nothing changed. These are all Christians. I think of a, of a young guy who prayed for his um, mentally health sister for 11 years and she suicided. I, I, I think of a young girl who um, was, you know, neglected by mum, uh, abandoned by dad, molested by her uncle, and um, then she finally became a Christian. But for her teenage years, she became a Christian at 11, but for the rest of her teenage years, she suffered from terrible sexual addictions, and she prayed and prayed and prayed for God to kind of somehow, you know, bring these to an end, and they never did. And so people suffer. I mean, I could, I've written a book about a 25-year period in my own life where, in my own small way, I went through one disappointment and disaster after another, and they never stopped for 25 years. So, suffering can inhibit this love of God. Is that right? Um, so, what do you do with it? So, I've had to work on this, so I'm now going to suggest I've had to change my image of God in order to deal with this. Now, some of you won't like what I'm about to say. That's your problem. Um, <laughs> and I don't say that unkindly. But it kind of goes like this. You see, there is, let me give you an example. You know when we go to church on Sundays, there are some well-meaning worship leaders who will get up and say, isn't it great? And they're saying these sort of things to really enthuse us in our worship. And they say, isn't it great that God is in total control? Now, I just wish that sometimes our well-meaning worship leaders would just do a little bit more biblical study and theology instead of trotting out kind of one-liners that hardly do justice, justice to complex situations. Would you agree? So, I personally do not subscribe to the view that our God is in total control. Now, before you throw stones at a minor prophet from Kiwiland, um, what I mean by this is this. If you read scripture, the word control is never used of God, and I'm thankful that it, it, that it isn't. Because control carries certain ideas of domination, of uh, you are completely under the thumb, that you have no influence, you have no say-so, there's a lack of empowerment. I mean, that's the word control. But the word that Scripture uses of God is the word sovereign. And our God is a righteous sovereign. In other words, that His ultimate purposes for your life and for this world will, yes, be absolutely realized. But the word is sovereign. The word is not total control. Are you with me thus far? I think sovereign is a better word. Now, that that our God is sovereign, that that our God regulates, does not mean that he micromanages our lives. In other words, not everything that happens in our lives is as God rules it. Are you with me thus far? 
Because if we subscribe to that view, then we are coming close to some within Islam who, who adopt that, that theology that everything is the will of Allah. Not all Muslims believe that, but some do. But I do not see that as the image of our God. Um, what God, it seems to me, has done is that, if you can imagine at the beginning of time there was this kind of celestial card game, and God had all the cards, but because our God loves to share life and create life, he dealt the cards. And he dealt cards to the planet, such that the planet at times, because of the way it's been created, it does things like earthquakes. He dealt cards to angelic beings and some of those, and free will angelic beings, and some of those rebelled. And they have some influence and say so now. He dealt cards to free will human agents. And of course we know the story of Adam and Eve. Um, and so it seems to me that, you know, that there are a number of forces and players in the game of life. And you're one of them. And God has created you to be this adult. I mean, it's partly up to you to create your future. It's not in his job description to do everything for you. Is that right? I mean, you have to also exercise and um, express yourself as a decision maker. Yes, within the context of prayer. Yes. And wanting to do his will. So, that's the first thing that I'd like to say. But the second thing that I'd like to say is that I do not personally subscribe to the image of God that has God as omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Now, have you heard those terms, people? Sorry if this is a bit deep, um, but coffee is around the corner. But those three terms are Greek philosophic terms. They're not necessarily Hebraic terms. They come from Greek philosophy, that our God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. Now, when I read my scriptures, I don't know when you read yours, God is messy. God is untidy. God cannot be found within a neat and tidy box, like omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Those are neat and tidy boxes. Why do we want God in boxes? Because then we can control him. Because middle class people like us in this tent, uh, we have control issues. Could you just turn to the person and say, yes, we do. And so it seems to me that even with our God, we want to create an image for him, an image that we can control him thereby. Are you with me? So where I'm up to in, these, in terms of these three terms, omnipotent or powerful, omniscient or knowing, omnipotent or present, is this. That I've already said in terms of omnipotence that whereas God had absolute power, he's now limited himself so it's not a weakness, it's self-imposed. And he chooses not always to be powerful. So you see a God who sometimes will heal, but not at other times. 
What God does sometimes, he doesn't do all the time. You know this in your own life and churches. So we have this God who self, is self-limiting. That's not weakness. He can still be powerful, but he sometimes chooses not to be. Yes? So in that sense, he's not all-powerful. Like you take, for example, all-knowing. Yes! Don't get me wrong. God can be all-knowing. He has the capacity to know absolutely everything. The question is, does he actualize that capacity? We read in Scripture where God genuinely tests people to try and know what's in their hearts. So it seems to me that we have this God who absolutely has the capacity to know everything, but chooses at times not to know everything so that he too is surprised. Thirdly, omnipresent. We have a God who, yes, can be everywhere, but we read in Scripture that he's not. He chooses not to be in some places. He chooses to, keep, to set himself apart from some people and at times from the Israelites because of sin. And thus we get the Psalms. Where are you, my God? And there's a cry of lament. Why is God departed? So God can be everywhere, but he chooses not to be. He can be anywhere, but not necessarily everywhere. Yes? Because people have these neat and tidy boxes of God, I think that is one of the reasons why they struggle to love him. They can respect him, they can admire him, but they may struggle to love this kind of machine in the sky, this philosophic definition in the heavens, this, and so they struggle to love. They may know, but not love. Did you get that? So that was a bit controversial, wasn't it? So with the person next to you, um, just have a wee rigorous discussion, go to it. <laughs> okay, friends. Here we go. Aren't you glad you came this morning? So, here's my third point, because I've got to bring this to a close. Um, by the way, tomorrow it's very, it's more practical because it's love of neighbour. And Ruby and I have done a lot with neighbours over four decades. So I'm going to share wisdom and about love of neighbour tomorrow morning. But just to finish, in terms of loving God... I, look, I can't help but being a bit of an observer of what's going on. I have noticed something within Christian culture that I think is, again, unhealthy. And that is, we've ended up thinking that we can have an egalitarian relationship with God. In other words, God is our equal. In other words, you know, we can reduce God to being buddy and lover. But when you read scripture, actually, it's more of a hierarchical relationship. And God is definitely master. Now, please, in hearing that, don't necessarily think that therefore God is tyrannical, domineering, um, you know. Uh, no, there can be care, and there is intimacy. But you do need to keep in mind that the God in scripture is the God who commands. 
And he is the God who gives instructions. He is the God who wants to tell us how to live our lives. Um, the crucial mode of response to God is love, yes, but in scripture that means obedience. That's why they say of God's love, it's holy love. It's not just love. And so the crucial mode of response to this God is not just the heart feelings, I'm in love, it's life. I will obey in every area. And you see, what I'm noticing at, with surrender circles, so I'm now laying it down even more, is that when it comes to the Christian left, so I have a privilege, I mix it with the Christian right, the Christian centre, and the Christian left, but let's for argument's sake that surrender circles are centre-left. What's happening in centre-left circles is that they end up with this, again, this transactional relationship with God, and not a transformational one. In other words, they say to God, God, I have got, I'm, I'm doing such great stuff for the poor. And because I'm doing such great stuff with the poor, you actually don't mind if I'm sleeping with my girlfriend outside of marriage. And so the degree of cohabitation now in Christian circles is high. I mean, the hot issue used to be homosexuality. But now it's cohabitation in church circles, and especially centre-left circles, because they've fallen into the trap of, well, you know, I can get drunk, all in the name of, you know, because I'm there on the front lines in social justice protest circles. And so they end up with this 9 out of 10 life. You know, in 9 areas, they're just fantastic. But in the 10th areas, they think, no, God, not your will be done, mine will be done, thank you very much. Are you with me? No, I don't think it's just the left. <laughs> I think it is across the board, but I'm noticing with increasing alarm that it is, a, it is quite powerful in centre-left circles. Um, so, to love God is to revere God. To love God is to defer to God. And our God is a holy God. The best picture I have of this God, and with this I'm done, He's, he's like an Italian woman. In other words, when she comes home and discovers that her husband has been unfaithful, you know, if you've ever seen the kind of caricature of an Italian woman in a movie, she, she gets very volatile. I mean, she throws dishes. She, um, she uses all manner of language. She yells a lot. Um, and then she charges in with her husband and, you know, with fists and, and she expels him from the family home and says that you're banished for 40 days and 40 nights. And, you know, I mean, she's, she's very volatile. Now look, you read scripture. That's our God. You should see how our God and not just the God of the Hebrews, but also God incarnate Jesus and see their volatility 
in Scripture. In other words, our God is a holy God. And He will yell with loud discourse when He sees you doing something and me doing something that will stop the best from happening in our lives. In other words, our God traffics in melodramatic language. Our God is a dramatic God. And he gets really, really deeply, profoundly outraged and angry and upset when we fail to revere him and to defer to him, to obey him, because that is to love God. Yeah. So we just started lightly. <laughs> and we pick up our little journey tomorrow morning for those who would like to come back. Maybe smaller in number. <laughs> But tomorrow it's the wisdom around loving neighbour. And we do need not just information, but more wisdom. That's tomorrow morning. And I've run out of time because we started late. So, God bless you. Yeah. This was one of many conversations recorded live at Surrender 16. We hope you found this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking please check in with us at surrender.org.au for more resources and opportunities to engage and connect with our wider movement.